This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Rogan. There's no one workplace that looms larger in Washington, D.C. than the White House. Hundreds of employees operate within its walls, but most of us don't know much about what goes on there. This season on Working, we're peeking behind the curtain, talking to some of those who make their way through its gates each morning. We'll be speaking with a range of employees, from those who help shape policy to the people who keep the building itself running. Last week, we spoke to Fiona Reeves, who manages all the correspondence that citizens send to the White House. For our second episode, we're talking to Paulette Aniskoff, Deputy Assistant to the President and Director of the White House Office of Public Engagement. Aniskoff and her colleagues strive to help the administration connect with ordinary citizens, bringing some of those citizens into the White House to connect with the president in turn. She talked to us about all of that, going into everything from how her office arranges visitors in the Roosevelt Room to the way that they work with traditionally underserved communities. And in a Slate Plus Extra, Aniskoff tells us about how her job has changed since the early days of the 2008 campaign and tells us how she maintains balance in her current life as a new mother. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? 
My name is Paulette Anaskoff, and I run an office in the White House called the Office of Public Engagement. What does the Office of Public Engagement do? The Office of Public Engagement, uh, under past administrations, was called the Office of Public Liaison, and I think they did a lot of um, constituency work and working with organizations here in D.C. And when our administration began, one of the, I think, very cool concepts was to organize the grassroots, not just here in D.C., but really try to get out of D.C. and make sure we're talking to people all over the country and engaging the grassroots on the president's priorities. Um, so that, you know, can look like a lot of things. Probably healthcare was one of our biggest and most well-coordinated and really fun. When you start to have a conversation about something like healthcare. Who are you talking to, to to start to figure out how to zero in on these these issues? Yeah, our starting point, literally us sitting in a room and saying, okay, the goal is young people. How the hell are we going to do this? And laying out who we know, what organizations we think are really good at this work. We always sort of do the obvious ones, and then we start digging in and say, who are we not thinking about that might have a really good impact? We knew that if young people didn't sign up, the healthcare system wouldn't work as well because we'd have a lot of sick people, but not a lot of healthy people. Mm -hmm. Someone said YouTube stars are great at reaching out to youth. And some of these people have way bigger followings than a lot of the celebrities we normally mm -hmm. engage. So why don't we kind of call them up and see if they're interested a lot in of coming have in? Bigger followings than Donald Trump. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. So things like the Between Two Ferns episode with the president, uh -huh. uh, which was really funny with Zach Galifianakis, that doing that? Uh, was our was our office. Yeah. Um, and something that, to be honest, was a little hard to convince people because a lot of folks had not seen Between Two Ferns. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like people actually watch this show, I was I was actually pretty surprised. Shh. Hi. Welcome to another edition of Between Two Ferns. I'm your host, Zach Galifianakis. And uh, my guest today is uh, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. Good to be with you, Zach. It must kind of stink, though, that you can't run, you know, three times. You no, know. actually, I think it's a good idea. Uh, you know, if I ran a third time, it'd be sort of like doing a third hangover movie. Didn't really work out very well, did it? My office gets a couple of cool points. We have like the youngsters who are always up on uh, all the new and cool stuff that is is circulating around. But our office, I think, ultimately is known for the not glittery cool stuff that ends up on TV. Yeah. <laughs> our office, I think, does our best work when we're doing what we did in the campaign, which is organizing communities. Mm -hmm. And we did things like a healthy mayor's challenge where you get every mayor to work with these nonprofit organizations and dig into their community and say, We've looked at the numbers. Have you thought about signing up this group of people? Have you dug into your community colleges? So we'll do a call with every community college, and then we'll make sure we connect them, connect the dots with the mayors. And we know that we are trying to reach a lot of people who are underserved in their community. And those people tend to congregate around organizations that, that are always working with them. You know, um, the United Way, the YMCA, Catholic Charities. I mean, tons of faith organizations really wanted to get people signed up. And and when people are hurting and don't have health care, we are looking for them where they go. So tell us about maybe just the shape of a more typical day then. When do you mm. get here? When do you start work? What's what's the beginning of the day look like? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I'm a new mom, so my my day starts a little bit earlier than it used to. I usually get in a little bit after eight, and then I'm usually on my breast pump for a while, to be honest, <laughs> um, um, and sort of plotting out my day, making sure that I'm I'm thinking through what I want to check in with my deputies about and my boss. And because things happen really rapidly at the White House, you do a lot of check-ins because things change per day. You know, you don't have a weekly staff meeting. You have to check in daily. Because, that means you're checking with your whole team? Or yep. With- we check in with our boss. Our senior staff get together every morning at 9. I check in with my deputies, and they can sort of relay information. You've got to have an opportunity to both give and get feedback very quickly. So we have a ton of morning meetings, and I think that's very typical in the White House. And then our job is to engage the public. So my staff are meeting with the public all day, every day, calling grassroots organizations, setting up conference calls, and then bringing in um, a lot of these groups to kind of talk through some strategic planning. They're not all in D.C., so uh, I've got about eight chairs in my office, and they are full for a good portion of the day, sitting down and walking through how we're going to attack a problem. Yeah. Where in the White House itself do you work? Are you in the West Wing? Are you here in the executive office building? Or I am. I'm in the West Wing on the second floor. And people have told me it's Carl Rove's old office, which yeah. it's kind that. of a, a fun fact. And I, it actually really made me realize that who is sitting in different chairs in this yeah. White House can just make such a difference. Like yeah. who is sitting in each of these offices? And that maybe that seems really obvious, but when you actually swap out one person for another, it's kind of an interesting thing to to consider. Do you ever feel like maybe it's a little haunted by that other presence though? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did have this moment where uh, we got these new phones and these three people come in to install my new phone. And I thought that was a bit extreme. And I said, I've always thought my phone looks so 90s and haha, now I'm getting a new one. He said, it is. This is from the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, okay, well, great. Can't wait to have the new phone. Can't believe this one has lasted that long. And he said, now I want to talk to you about your speed dial. You are the office in the West Wing that has the most speed dials set in. They all are direct lines to various cabinet secretaries. We don't know if they're you have put those in or if they were the person before you or the person before you. They sent me this list and they said, who do you want to keep? I had put none of them on there, but they it was literally a list of cabinet secretaries. I don't know if they were the Clinton administration, Bush administration, (laughs) our administration, um, but a direct line to... I mean, everyone you can imagine, the Pentagon, the Attorney General. Um, it was it was kind of funny to see that. So obviously the technology has changed a lot uh, for the ways that we communicate during the time that you've, uh, that, that the president has been in office here. Yes. But does much communication still happen on the phone? Are people emailing each other? Are you walking from office to office? How does that internal communication work? You know, there is something a little bit old school, I have to say, about, you know, I don't necessarily know that it's the White House per se. Maybe it's a little bit of of D.C. in general. But there is something about face-to-face communication. And for the most part, our check-ins are in person. One thing that is very clear to me is that we have a a weekly meeting where uh, anyone is invited. And it's mostly progressive community that shows up. But we get, believe me, just about everybody. It's an open meeting. It's an off-the-record meeting. You can ask any question you want. And that meeting has made me realize how important face-to-face communication is and that people still desire the ability to meet. And we can't do that with grassroots organizations outside of D.C., 
we do conference calls. We certainly use a flood of email. Our social media team is fantastic. But when it comes to organizing and really collaborating with people, there is something to be said about sitting them down in a room and working through some issues together that you just can't do on a conference call. Do you ever in your position have the opportunity to sit down in a room with the president? We do. And our our office um, gets to set up um, <laughs> this is embarrassing, but we call we call it real people. <laughs> um, uh, when we want the president to get a sense of an issue or of um, of what people are saying, my office will pick those people, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like the more real, the better. And I have this um, I have this saying that if they take their placard with them when they leave, because it has this little White House thing, you know you've got a good one. Uh, they were impressed to be there. They were excited to be in the White House. It's probably their first time. They're clearly not from D.C. if they take their placard with them. So it's sort of this litmus test we have in our office to make sure that we're getting real, real people. Uh, what When you're planning that out, what is the standard of a real person? What does that mean <laughs> uh, for, for you or for your office? Yeah, it generally means they're almost never from D.C. Some of them are part of an organization, but rarely a lobbying organization. Uh, we will work with an organization to find these people, and we work with our correspondence office to find these people. And it's folks who might be have a typical problem or a, a feel like um, they're they're a typical American. You know, maybe they're people who had a healthcare issue they wrote in about. Maybe they're a healthcare worker who has been working and fighting for a bigger minimum wage. People who you can imagine there are thousands of, and. Um, you know, working particularly with our correspondence office, we get an opportunity to hear from people that are just hard to connect to directly. And we get this little peek into that world. And they're always really shocked when you call and say, come on in, we want to meet with you. <laughs> During the healthcare campaign, we brought in, I want to say, 10 or 12 people that were a mix of what we call, you know, RPs, um, to sit down and, and talk to the president about what the ACA meant to them. And these are people that some of them had a pre-existing condition. Some of them had never been on healthcare in their entire lives. Some of them had gone bankrupt. How much work do you do with a person, with a real person, before you bring them in to be a real person? Do you A-B test your real people? How, how do you figure <laughs> out which is, which is the realest real person? Uh, it's usually uh, by having a conversation with them over the phone. Um, we get an opportunity to, you know, maybe we find, if we're doing a roundtable with POTUS and 10 people. Maybe we start with 40. Some from correspondents who've written letters in. We work with organizations who have such a deep root in communities that we can really get them to tap in and, and find someone who they think is a great example. We now have a thousand Champions of Change, which is a program out of our office of people that we've celebrated for their amazing grassroots work. So we'll go back through that list. And usually that the biggest indicator to get a sense of if they'll engage well via conversation, because you don't want the president to be in a room with people who don't want to talk. Um, we just call them. We call through them, have a conversation with them. People are always a little surprised, but excited when the White House calls. So they'll talk to you for quite a while. And uh, we always, you know, my office really looks to make sure we've got, uh, you know, different age range. We want to make sure not everyone in the room agrees with us. That's always a, a goal of ours. We don't want to make sure it's kittens and sunshine for every meeting. Mm-hmm. We like to hear about real issues. Um, we love to make sure we've got ethnic diversity, age diversity, religious diversity, and, and make sure it's a real mix of that really shows what the country is about. So 
are people surprised, people who don't necessarily agree with the president, surprised when you invite them to come in? (laughs) Always. Um, But it's like you're only going to have a healthy conversation and interesting dynamic. And frankly, the president doesn't want to be around a bunch of people who just agree with him all the time. So um, it is always for it makes for more interesting conversation. And and maybe you don't want someone who, you know, is like threatening death to everyone who works at the White House, but someone who has just a healthy disagreement. We can easily find those people, too. I mean, we've got a lot of people that write in and say, I didn't vote for you. I don't agree with you. But here's something that I wanted to tell you about, um, which I think is just a great dynamic to have. Has it ever gone awry when you brought in someone who didn't agree? Have it ever been in people kind of freaking out or anything? I, I have never seen someone completely. Oh, that's not true. I, I have seen someone really lose their cool. Usually, though, when you are in a room with the president, I think they're just a little more thoughtful about what they say. And people usually prepare for the meeting a bit. So people may push back. He's also a really smart guy and really good at kind of talking through his thinking. So a lot of times there is a disagreement in the room, but people sort of agree to disagree. It It's only gotten toxic once that I've seen. Um, we had a group of people who are extremely used to getting their way, who are very beltway insiders. And the president just fundamentally disagreed with them. And, and usually we're on the same side of these issues. And the president just said, people have told you up and down the chain that this is not what we're doing. And now you're hearing it from me. This is not what we're doing. And they were surprised. I think uh, a lot of people think when they get a no, it's, it's not coming from the boss. It's coming from some staffer who doesn't know what they're doing. But sometimes when it's from the boss, there's <laughs> nowhere else to go. So um, yeah, that's about, that's about as specific as I can get on that one. <laughs> Do you prep for your day differently if you know that you're going to have one of these sit downs, one of these interactions with the president in it? Is that, does that kind of day feel differently than, uh, than a regular one? Definitely. Um, I would say, uh, usually the days ahead, I want to make sure that I really understand these people's bios. And it's always just kind of a a really fun and interesting day because you never know how it's going to go. And, uh, normally, um, I'm definitely going to get in the office a little bit earlier, make sure that everything's tight. I will ask the day before and the day of of my staff if those kind of little details are set. Where people sit in the room is a big deal for conversation. We will choose exactly who's going to sit across from the president in the Roosevelt Room. Could you describe that room for us? Yeah. What does it look like? Yeah, it's sort of one of those old school leathery brown rooms that um, you would imagine is in the White House. There's a very long oval table. It's very shiny and you always feel bad putting your drink on it. Um, but is it cool to put Leaving Mark, but you're allowed. Okay. Yep. There are, uh, let's see, I'm guessing 16 chairs around it. One of them is just a little bit taller and that's the one for POTUS. He sits in the middle. And um, on one end, there's this very famous painting of Teddy Roosevelt on a horse and it's just very rugged looking. Uh-huh. Um, there is this uh, old hutch that inside of it has a very modern video conference capability in it. There's just sort of a lot of pomp and circumstance stuff in that room. And a lot of times, to be honest, if I can't get the president's time, I will use that room as the principal itself uh, to host an important meeting and say, like, you're in the Roosevelt Room, so we're serious here, people. And it really works. I mean, Does it's that a, kind of environment of power uh, calm people down or, or, or focus them, do you think? I think it makes them take it really seriously. Um, certainly we've not had trouble with it intimidating people. That's never the case. But I think people tend to prepare for a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. Mm -hmm. And when we want people to really have a focused 
good meeting, whether it's with or without the president, uh, that's a great room to do it in. I mean, everyone knows it. It's sort of historical and pretty legendary. And oftentimes, a lot of organizations and, and people will get together, you know, if we're meeting with a group of civil rights leaders, let's say, they will all get together ahead of time and say, we've got a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. Let's like connect on who's going to ask what question in what order. And they really think it through and um, organize themselves really well when they know um, when they know it's a big deal. Can you say a little more about the kind of stage management, the blocking, uh, the organization of those events? How, how do you yeah. decide who sits where and uh, whether or not to fill every chair and, and so on? Yeah. Generally, I would say we have the most productive conversations with a group of, of 12 or less. I mean, one, once you get even over 10, I think it, it's uh, hard to have a, as productive of conversation. And so figuring out what staff will be in the room, sitting at the table, we don't want to take up too many chairs for staff. We want, obviously, the president, usually my boss, Valerie Jarrett, who is close friends with the president and also a senior advisor. She will be there and we'll figure out based on, you know, if it's a group of LGBT organizing heads, we will think about certainly having the right mix of LGBT staff there, um, thinking about potentially some of our communication staff in the room. But when it comes to who is sitting around the table, we want to make sure we've got, again, a real mix of diversity and age and thought and not always pick sort of the the same suspects as always. Uh, I think there's a typical list that everyone in Washington, D.C. would say, like, these are the four people you got to invite for this. These are the mm-hmm. eight people you got to invite for this. And we try really hard to break out of that mold because we think it adds a lot to the conversation. So we will... On paper, we have this sort of like little Roosevelt Room diagram, and we will plot out exactly how many chairs we've got. We sort of know the limits of how many chairs we can illegally add, which you're not supposed to do because there's all these protocol things about the fabric chairs aren't supposed to be with the leather chairs or something like that. Um, It's got to have like the look and feel that they, you know, the historical folks like in the White House. Um, So we've sort of rammed in a lot of extra chairs into that room when we want to have a few extra people. But um, at that big, long table, you've got all these chairs set up. We also have a lot of people backbenching. So, um, Is that uh, where support staff also sits? And things support like staff, yep. They will be there if we have to queue up a video or if we need to um, have someone come in and uh, pass people notes or memos or prompt them on something. And then we've got someone who comes in to give the president tea. He will pop in during some point. If it's a fancier meeting, we sometimes have like water and tea and coffee, which is not always the norm, but once so in a while. Does only the president get tea, though, if someone comes in to give the president tea? Usually. But then uh, if he's going to get tea service, usually they'll offer it around to be polite. He's not he's a He's a pretty guy? polite guy. Not that I know. I've never seen him drink coffee. Only oh. tea. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is really the first administration that's embraced social media. Uh, as part of its way of communicating with the public. Is that something that you're involved with? Yeah, it has been in some in some pretty fun ways. And I would say um, the president's busy. We don't always get the president. So you figuring out how to utilize social media or his voice via video or um, his likeness is, you know, a very helpful way of doing our jobs. 
there are a few examples I would bring up. One is bringing in the YouTube stars and really talking through with them how they can help us reach a whole new group of people that we just don't tap into easily. Um, asking people to organize their own uh, It's On Us anti-sexual assault campaign on campus. We really use social media to drive that launch and then follow up with it and got it to really trend in a big way online for it to take off around campuses. And that's something, obviously, if you're on campus, um, you know, you're, we're not going to have the president visit 200 campuses or bring them all in. So making sure that we can launch that in a way that will immediately hit campuses, that they can take their own campaign, put their own stamp on it and run with it was really important to us. Uh, do social media platforms make it easier to reach out to niche audiences, uh, smaller demographics yeah. and groups, do you think? Definitely. I mean, we did an Instagram takeover with an API star, an Asian American Pacific Islander celebrity, and it meant the world to young API people across the country to see someone that they knew who looked like them taking over the White House Instagram feed for the day. And that is the kind of simple but really fantastic thing that we can do that just hits a very specific number of people who enjoy it, see it feel really good about it, and then engage with us, maybe even permanently after that. And and so we've been really trying to chase down what are the opportunities we can to really reach out to um, small groups of people. One of the most heartfelt events we've ever had here was a disability LGBT event. And people were crying in the room telling me that they had never been in an entire room of people who were LGBT and disabled. And Everyone was just crying in the room. It was so amazing just to bring those folks together and let them celebrate together. It was really, it meant a lot certainly to us, but wow, it meant a lot to them. Mostly teenagers in the room, and they were really thrilled. How do you decide on a community to reach out to or to work with? And what's the process there? What kind of conversations happen in order to make an event like that one with disabled LGBT youth uh, happen? Yeah. We are um, really, I think, pretty good at, at trying to figure out um, a little bit of everybody. And in sometimes people will come up with a request to us and say, you guys have never done an African-American LGBT event. Would you consider it? So sometimes they'll, they'll come to us. Other times, our liaisons are just so creative and know their communities so well. I have a disability liaison. I have an LGBT liaison, African-American, um, Latino, API. They just know their communities so well, and I think they have a sense of where we haven't gone yet and where we should go. Um, you know, it will not surprise you that our new liaison for LGBT issues is someone who is transgender, knows the transgender community incredibly well, has organized for years in that community. She knows that community inside and out. And so when we're planning the year, there were things that we hadn't done in that community that she felt like would be really um, symbolic and an amazing opportunity. And, and frankly, the staff across the White House is so diverse that a lot of these ideas come in from various parts of the White House, not just my staff. I mean, we've got some awesome people in every... Do those kind of conversations with your liaisons end up, do you think, ever affecting policy? Do they make their way up through the organization? Definitely. Definitely. I think there is both... There are policy changes and symbolic changes both. Um, 
you know, conversations that they have that we link directly to our policy teams and directly into agencies and we stay on them and make sure that they have an understanding of how much energy is behind that effort. Sometimes organizations will be pushing Congress to do things. Sometimes they'll push us to do things. So we will walk through, I would say, don't ask, don't tell is one that really stands out to me as one that the community immediately wanted to jump into as soon as this administration started. They wanted um, to not have to have it be don't ask, don't tell anymore, which I think was an outdated policy and something that was just never going to work. As old as your phone, probably. As old as my phone. Exactly. Um, So that is the kind of thing that the community immediately reached out and worked through a very long policy process. And then we also have things that I think are symbolic that are potentially equally or even more important than policies to some people, like lighting up the White House in a rainbow. I think meant a lot to a lot of people around the world. How many kind of issues or topics are you juggling in your office at any given time? (laughs) That's the biggest challenge of my office. (laughs) With diversity um, comes strength, but also comes a lot of different issues. And on the same day that I'm talking about, you know, a transgender bathroom issue, we've got labor leaders that are, you know, worried about a very specific thing in a bill on the Hill. We've got disability rights advocates, you know, one of them is protesting outside on the same day as something else is happening. And understanding how many issues are a part of this portfolio is a little bit insane. Part of it is just understanding the North Star of what the administration is about. And you can actually make some assumptions from there. And that's something that I've sort of gone back to over and over because you can't know everything about every issue. So you have to understand what the president thinks about civil rights and and how the administration is going to deal with some of these. And I think this administration has been so thoughtful and it allows me to just sit back for a second instead of trying to know every single issue, think about it in sort of the broader brushstrokes. How do you make sure when you're planning these events that the language you use and all of the other kind of factors that you bring to the table are sensitive to to everyone, whether or not they're in the room. I have learned so much about various communities in this job, but the easy part is that our White House looks like those people. Um, And so we get an opportunity to know by asking the team around us. And I think they very rarely make a mistake because it's part of their life. So whether it's something like making sure that the White House does a better job, making sure that uh, folks who are disabled can watch every video we have online. I mean, we we have someone who has fought for that on the outside and, and knows that from a policy perspective and works with people every day. Um, when it comes to working with folks of different religious backgrounds, we've got a ton of people in the building who that is their religion and they get an opportunity to weigh in. There is a world in which even with people in the building, you still mess up, but uh, we are actually brought in on every speech. We are brought in for every event. People pursue asking the advice and want it to be inclusive. And I think you know, you could have the best staff in the world, but ultimately the structure itself has to support asking for that advice. So I think that's been a healthy thing here. But we have not had, um, uh, certainly there are tons of people who disagree with us, and we've had tons of protesters outside. We have people protesting every day. But it's less hard to do than you would imagine because people kind of live it. And, you know, we proactively put a 
gender neutral bathroom into the White House quite a while ago. And that's the kind of thing that I think we proactively did because people in the building asked for it and said, we need to do this kind of thing. So those things, I think, come easily to us. Are there demographics that feel especially hard to reach or communities that you have to struggle to talk to? You know, I would say no matter what, it is very tough to reach underserved communities. It it is really hard to get direct information from the people who need government the most. We generally go through organizations that serve them to reach them, but those organizations are underfunded. They are busy. And so reaching underserved communities, I think, is, is one of the toughest challenges. So thinking through how better to do that, but also making sure those organizations can always be at the table without it being a huge burden to them is, is a way that we do that. What kind of organizations do you reach out to in order to try to contact those, those underserved communities? Yeah, I, w- I would say a few of the best. I mean, I think United Way just does amazing work, um, as well as Catholic Charities. We work with many faith organizations, both their big sort of association type of things in D.C., but also individual churches. We try to set up a lot of listservs and make sure that we are connecting through through people's faith is just a really good way to make sure that um, that people have a connection and through social services. So we're approaching the end of this eight-year presidency. Has that changed the way that your office thinks about issues, approaches them? Does it add an urgency to what you're doing? The urgency is there. <laughs> I will say that. Trying to get as much done as we can in a short time. Um, I kind of thought that maybe... Things would there'd be like a little downtick, uh, particularly since there are some policies we can't execute in that kind of time frame. That has not been the case. There's been no downtick. It's just sort of, you know, we've just been marching on. I would say maybe even an engagement piece goes up because so many people are wanting to collaborate that they haven't or sort of seeing the time running out and, you know, want to get in and help in some way, shape or form. I thought there would be sort of a little time to set back and talk about legacy and think about the things that are next. And there is just no time for that. We are still working. And I think, frankly, will be until January. I mean, I just, I don't see this slowing down. Have you had time to think about what's next for you? I told myself that I would, and I will at some point. I've got a lot of work to do on that. I need a job. (laughs) (laughs) Starting starting January 21st, I'll definitely need to, to figure out how to take a vacation and find a new, a new role. I hope it's a long vacation. <laughs> I hope so too. Uh, how does it feel to think about stepping out of this role and looking back on your legacy any, and, and the legacy of the administration? Any thoughts on that? You know, I, I joined the campaign because I knew I would never regret it. Um, and I am certain I will never have a job where I both feel like I'm making a bigger impact or working with more amazing people. And so I can't help but be deeply sad and deeply happy at the same time at knowing I got to be a part of this wonderful decade-long adventure uh, that has completely changed my life. Knowing it's going to end and knowing I won't work with these people every day and get to come to work every day here is... um, it is the saddest, saddest thing, but I am so proud, and that will, um, that will last forever. Wonderful. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for making me cry for my next meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. We read all of the emails. Uh, You can listen to all seven seasons at slate.com slash working. This series was produced by uh, me and Mickey Kapper. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. Special thanks this season go to Rachel Rackison at the White House Press Office. In a Slate Plus Extra, Aniskoff tells us about how her job has changed since the early days of the 2008 campaign and tells us how she maintains balance in her current life as a new mother. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chumpacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.